this morning we'll be finishing up in the book of Haggai with his fourth and final message, which is found in Haggai 2, verses 20 to 23. Each one of his messages were addressed to a people who were demoralized and discouraged. They had been beaten down and defeated by life and circumstances because things weren't working out the way they had hoped. And as a result, many were ready to call it quits, to give up on their inheritance as the people of God, simply adopt the ways of the world, the ways everyone else were doing things so that they could get along and perhaps finally get ahead. So God sent the prophet to them with a message, a very basic, simple message, captured in a number of posters that used to be popular a series a while back. Remember these? Hang in there. Came in all shapes and sizes and animals. That was my favorite. That was the message of of Haggai, basically. Hang in there. It may not come overnight. It may not happen all at once. But hang in there and be faithful, and change will come. Things are going to get better. So when the armies of Babylon marched into Jerusalem in 587 B.C., they practiced a scorched earth policy. The city was completely destroyed. The population had been decimated, either killed or they deported all the best and the brightest, anyone with skills or training or education they took and relocated, and they left behind only the poorest of the poor as a way to ensure that there would be no future uprising. But shortly before its fall, God had made a promise through the prophet Jeremiah that one day he was going to bring them back home. And against all common sense, during the darkest days of the siege, in Jeremiah 32, it says that God instructed the prophet Jeremiah to go out and buy a piece of property. It didn't make sense. They were ready to be destroyed, and God says, spend your money on some property. And God said that was going to be a sign and a seal of my promise, that one day your people will return and rebuild their homes and their lives. That became as a beacon of hope during the long years of captivity. Hang in there because change was coming. After the fall of Babylon in 539, God began to answer their prayers when Cyrus, king of Persia, issued a decree that any Jew who wished to could return home. And 50,000 Jews took him up on his offer with the hope that their fortunes were now changing. But as so often happens... God, and God began to answer their prayer. There were a lot of good intentions by those who returned. A lot of promises that this time things were going to be different. They would rebuild the temple. They would work on their relationship with God. And this time they would be faithful. But good intentions proved short-lived. Once they got back, they got busy with life, distracted by all the things they wanted to do, And soon God was just someone they thought about on weekends when it was time for the weekly sacrifice. Have you ever noticed how easy that is for us also? When we're going through difficulty, we make all these promises to God. If you save me, if you change my circumstances, if you bring me through this, God, I'll serve you. I'll get involved in the church. I'll begin to tithe. I'll volunteer for BBS. And our fortunes begin to change. 
We get distracted, we forget the promises, we start justifying our neglect, saying, we just need more time. Someday it'll be different. Someday I'll get around to it. And for 16 years, the people of Judah kept telling themselves and God, someday we'll get to your temple, God, but nothing changed. And everywhere they looked, they saw reminders of their failure and their nation's humiliation. The walls remained in ruins. The homes and buildings were still destroyed. Even the temple was little more than a pile of rubble. And if you read the book of Nehemiah, you see that their ongoing situation made them a laughingstock to their neighbors. So they may as well give up and blend in with everyone else. So God sends Haggai with his first message. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. And the Lord then asks, is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? He's telling them, stop ignoring me. Thinking that someday, when it's more convenient, you'll get around to me. But now you're paying attention to your paneled houses. It's a reference to their own security and their own pursuit of wealth. Get to work, he says. Rebuild my temple. Rebuild and restore your relationship with me. And when you do, God promises, then you'll begin to see me working among you. In other words, hang in there because change will come. In verses 12 through 15 of chapter 1, it says the people listened and they responded They threw themselves into the work of cleaning it up, getting ready to build, but it only lasted a few weeks until the initial excitement began to wear off and the grumbling began, and so God sends Haggai back with another message. Some were discouraging others by saying, it's all just a waste of time. It's never going to be the way it was. It's never going to be like it was in the good old days. And God's message through Haggai in this second message is stop your whining and complaining and longing for the good old days. Get to work because I will be with you. Hang in there and change will come. They start going through the motions. Give lip service to their faith, but their hearts really weren't in it. More complaining, more finger pointing because things weren't easy. They weren't moving along as they wanted. And so God sends Haggai back with a third message which is found in Haggai 2, verses 10 through 19. This one, he tells them, stop blaming God and others, feeling sorry for yourselves. Take responsibility for your life. Three times it says, give careful thought to your ways. Your circumstances are of your own making. And three times, God gives a promise that begins with the words, from this day on, Hang in there, and change is going to come. Anytime you start taking God seriously, change will come, and we begin to see the difference only He can make in our lives. Now we come to the last message. This one is a promise addressed to the governor, Zerubbabel, but in a much broader sense, his name is likely used here more as a messianic reference since the Davidic lineage of Jesus is traced through him. Verse 20 of Haggai 2, his final message begins, The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month, so December 18th. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. 
I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his own brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Jiltael, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. This short message, this passage, is a reminder of something that's too easily forgotten. Who's really in control of life? Who's really in control of the world? Where do we place our trust to provide for our safety and our security to get things done? If Haggai had asked the question, he would have gotten the standard textbook answer. Well, God, of course. But that's not what life was showing. They lived in a world where it was the rich and the powerful who were pulling the strings, who made all the decisions, who decided things for them. Not that much difference from today. First came the threat of Assyria, then came the armies of Babylon, now it was Persia, later it would be the Greeks and then the Romans. They had been under the thumb of foreign powers for so long, it was hard to see otherwise. So why not simply give up, go along with everyone else, adopt their standards? Since it seems to be working for them, why won't it work for me? It was only natural that while they might say God is in control, reality seemed to indicate something else for them. It was like the the story of the man who stopped to watch the Little League game. And as he watched, the team at bat kept hitting and scoring and hitting and scoring. And finally, he asked one of the boys on the other team what the score was. And he said, we're losing 18 to nothing. Aren't you discouraged? The boy had a puzzled look on his face said, why should I be discouraged? We haven't come up to bat yet. (laughs) Hang in there. Change is coming. There's a greater reality than what we see. The day will come when God gets up to bat, and then you'll see what he's going to do. God said, the day is coming when I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn the royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall. Despite how it seems and appears at the moment, despite the strength of the Persian armies, the taunting and ridicule of their neighbors, God reminds them he's in control. The shaking will come, so hang in there. It may not be today, but one day it's coming. For I have chosen you, he says. Powerful message there if you let it sink in for us if we'll hear it. You know, over the past 2,500 years since Haggai wrote, we may have advanced scientifically, technologically, socially, materially, but those changes really are superficial, a mere scratching of the surface. Where it really matters in the hearts of man, the world of Haggai really wasn't any different than today. People and power struggles, power structures, and the way we do things hasn't really changed. By appearances, it's still the rich and the powerful and the well-connected who seem to have everything go their way. The temptation for us sometimes may be, well, why not adopt their ways? It's working for them. Why not compromise? Why not give in? Become like them. They succeed. Why can't I? God says through Haggai, hold on because a new day is coming. God's going to shake things up. And when he does, the old order will pass away and he will make all things new. 
Paul said. That's what the book of Revelation is all about, a new beginning. And yet in spite of the coming of the Prince of Peace, the temptation remains for us, like the rest of the world, to rely on the strength of arms, the influence and our influence to settle our differences and impose our will. The statements that might makes right and to the victor goes the spoils still apply today. That's the way our world functions. But if we bring that into our own lives, we've got problems. It's still kings and politicians who make the laws and decisions based on their or their party's interests or nationalistic pride. Do you realize that despite deficit spending, cuts to human needs around the globe, governments of the world this year will find $1.8 trillion to spend on arms, but they can't find $30 billion that it would take to feed and end world hunger? If we're not careful, we can get jaded and start seeking our own security, not in the Lord, but in the same types of things and the sources of power structures that the world does. God says, among you, it's to be different. As it was in Haggai's day, so it remains that the has too often feel free to take advantage of the have-nots. Those with money and position and the right connections. We hear money makes the world go round. And so it seems with the continued proliferation of sweatshops and human trafficking. The bottom line often takes precedence over fair labor practices and issues of justice and fairness. Do you realize that the eight, just the eight, richest people in the world control more wealth than half of the entire world's population? That's 3.6 billion people. Something's not right. And we feel helpless to do anything about it. The people of Haggai's day said, that's the way the world is, so let's copy them. It's not yet time to build his temple, to work on our relationship to him. Let's build our paneled houses. Let's pursue our wealth. What about us? What do we say? The Bible often speaks of things like a tithe. Through our giving and support of his work, we show that our trust and priorities are in him, not in our positions. And yet studies actually show the higher our income, the smaller percentage we give. On a per capita basis, during the Great Depression, the average person in America gave 3.3% of their income to charity to help those in need. Today, it's 2.5%. And all the while, in our pockets, we hold currency that says, in God we trust. Do we? How many of us are making decisions and judging others, even entire ethnic groups, based on fear of what foreigners might do and the possibility of terrorism rather than by faith and trust in the Lord and his word, which clearly says, don't be like the world, which says, hate your enemies, but love your friends. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When was the last time you prayed for our enemies? Jesus went on to say in Matthew 5.47, if you greet only people like you, your own people, what are you doing more or differently than others? Don't even pagans do that? Money, power, connections control so much of what goes on in the world. And if we're not careful, we can settle in and start thinking, well, there's nothing we can do about it. That's the way things are. Why don't I go along? Why don't I make those my guiding principle? 
Is it any wonder so many live discouraged, defeated lives? We give in to the lie that the world has the last say. But God says, hang in there. Change is coming. The day will come. It may not be today, but He says, I will shake all creation. The heavens and the earth. I will overturn politics and politicians. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overcome this emphasis on might makes right by overthrowing chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall. Who are we going to listen to? The world or our creator? And then how are we going to live accordingly? Are we going to settle for the way things are or the way things God says they should be and will be one day? Don't give the world more credit than deserved because in the end, God always wins. A large two-engine train was making its way across the country and while it was crossing the Rocky Mountains, one of the engines broke down. And the engineer thought, no problem, we can still make it to Denver on the remaining engine and get it fixed there. But a little while later, further down the line, the other engine developed a problem. It broke down. Now, with no engine to power it, the train came to a complete stop in the middle of nowhere. And the engineer needed, knew he needed to inform all the passengers about what had happened and why the train had stopped. But he was an optimist. He always tried to look on the bright side of things. And so he made the following announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, I have some good news and I have some bad news. The bad news is that both engines have failed and will be stuck here for some time until the new engines arrive. The good news is you did not take this trip on an airplane. (laughs) The wise engineer presented the potentially disgruntled passengers with a different way of seeing things. Perhaps we need a different way to see the world than the world offers. Haggai's contemporary, Zechariah, put it well when he said, It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord Almighty. So hang in there. Ultimately, the words of Haggai and how we choose to live all come down to our eternal hope. Because as Paul said in Romans 5.5, hope will never disappoint us. Unfortunately, here we can be at a disadvantage because we don't really grasp the true nature of biblical hope. When we speak of hope, we're speaking of little more than wishful thinking, a desire, optimism that something may happen. Hoping, for us, usually involves a great deal of uncertainty. There's no expectation or reason for believing that what we hope for is really going to happen. And if it does, we're usually surprised, aren't we? To say, I hope so, can even be a polite way of saying, that would be nice, but probably not. It's a weak word in our language, but not in the Bible. The word itself comes from the root word that carries the idea of expectation, not mere chance. It carries the idea of confident assurance of what is going to be. Mennonite theologian John Howard Yoder said, true hope is quite different from the word that, as it's used today. He said, when something is certain to happen, so certain that we begin to make our plans accordingly, we say we expect that event. We count on it. We look forward to it. We anticipate it. But we'd never say we hope for it. 
Because for us, hope involves an element of uncertainty or even unlikelihood. If we hope for something to happen, we're not sure of it. We don't count on it, and we probably do not factor it into our planning. However, he says, in the Bible, it carries a very different understanding. It is one of the, most, uh, the strongest expressions in the New Testament. It refers to the strongest kind of certainty, he says, as expectations so sure that those who do not make their plans according to their hope are considered foolish. He goes on to say that type of certainty can never come from what the world offers you. Only God and his promises justify that type of hope in the biblical sense of the word. Or as another writer put it, hope is the present enjoyment of a future blessing. We're so confident that God's going to do what he says that we live our lives accordingly. The Gospels even say that knowing that the cross was before him, Jesus nevertheless set his face towards Jerusalem. It was because of his hope, his certainty of what God had for him that he made his plans and he lived his life. That's the example we're told to follow. It's that type of hope that enables us to hang in there knowing that change is coming, even in the face of adversity, knowing that God will have the last word. It's that type of hope that enables us to remain true when life appears to be heading south. Everything feels like it's falling apart because we know in the end, just as Jesus said, in this world we will have trouble, that we take heart because he's overcome the world. And then he invites us to join him. It's that type of hope that enables us to stand in the midst of the betrayal of friends, of financial hardship, of marital discord, of rebellious children, because we know that nothing in all of creation is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we have hope, because as Jesus said in John 16, in this world we do have trouble, but we don't lose heart. He's overcome it, and he invites us to join him. We can have hope, the certainty that right now it may appear that security lies in kings and politicians and money in the bank, but God says there's a shaking coming. Hang in there. Change is coming. It's a change he will initiate. And so begin to plan with confidence in his coming. As Max Dupree said, in the end, it's important to remember that you cannot become what you need or were meant to be by simply remaining what you are. So as Haggai says over and over again in his short book, hang in there. Change is coming. Father, we thank you that we can hang in there because you ultimately are the one who controls the ways of man, the direction of history. May you control our life as well, God, that we will remain true, that we will hang in there with that confident assurance, that hope grounded in the confidence that only comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Help us to live accordingly, we pray in his holy name. Amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound.